I don't know why I went, but I did. I knew something wasn't right. See, I had grown up in a religious family, especially my grandparents. I knew the scriptures. I knew the stories. I'd even been through a few of the rituals. But I knew something was missing. So one day, I heard some people talking about this man who was preaching. He was actually preaching out in the wilderness. Now, this is not particularly strange for, uh, for our area. You see, a few years ago, there was a man named Banus who took a group of people out into the wilderness. They took part in these cold ritual baths, uh, not exactly my, my cup of tea, and pretty soon, like all the quacks who came before him, he and his followers were, were gone. We didn't go out to the wilderness very often. Uh, the wilderness was dangerous. Thieves, wild animals, you just didn't go out there uh, very much. There was one group called the Essenes that lived in this area called Qumran, and they were pretty popular, and some people would go out there, but we didn't go out. The wilderness was empty. Everybody knew the wilderness was a place of chaos and trouble, and you, you just didn't go out there. And so I don't know why I went Maybe curiosity, maybe desperation, but I went. And sure enough, there was a crazy guy out there preaching in the wilderness. It turns out his name was John. Now John wore a coat of camel hair, had a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts, wild honey. The locusts and the wild honey uh, weren't that strange. It was just another prophet living off the basic parts of the land. The camel hair coat and the leather belt, that also wasn't that big of a deal, except it reminded me of something my grandma had told me. You see, my grandma would talk a lot about this prophet named Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet of the wilderness. And you probably guessed it, Elijah wore a camel hair coat and a leather belt. And what was particularly weird about this is I remembered that our last prophet Malachi told us that when the day of the Lord came, that Elijah would come back. And I knew as soon as I heard John speaking that the power of God was there. Because John kept screaming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it would be just like my grandma's God to show up with his kingdom in the wilderness. Because you see, for our ancestors, God formed us as a people in the wilderness. He brought them out of Exodus through the Exodus out of Egypt into the wilderness and made a covenant, a promise with our people. And even when he brought us into the promised land and we rebelled against, us, against him, our enemies exiled us where? To the wilderness. And God didn't forget us there either. Many of the people came back to the promised land. Except it was like we were still in the wilderness. 
we were still waiting for God to come and rescue us. And this made me think about my grandma's favorite prophet, Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, he said that when God came to rescue his people from the wilderness, that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Here was a guy crying in the wilderness. Here was Elijah who had come back, and the kingdom of God was coming. In fact, the kingdom of God was here, except I knew I wasn't ready for it. I knew I was not ready for the day of the Lord. Sure, I looked okay on the outside, but inside I was a mess. I did not need God to show up right now. What hope did I have? I came from a religious family. I could trace my lineage back to Abraham. That was going to be good enough when the kingdom of God came. And so as I'm sitting there trying to make sense of this, I look over and a group of Sadducees and Pharisees walk up. Now the Sadducees, they are the social elites of our culture. They are the people who are connected to Rome. They want to fit in. They have the money. They have the land. They're the wealthy landowners. I wasn't like them. I knew who they were, but I didn't fit in. The Pharisees, they were the religious elite. They knew the law. They thought they were better than everybody else. They were the moral police checking on people all the time. And I really wasn't like the Pharisees either, but they scared me because I could see myself in them. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees walked up, man, did John let them have it. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He let them have it. The problem was, it felt like he was talking to me. Because I knew about repentance. And I'd felt bad a few times about things I did, but I'd never changed the direction of my life. I knew who I was on the inside. And it stunned. It stunned when John called them stones. Because here's the problem with that. In our language, the word stones and the word children is one letter different. John was playing with them. He was poking at them, saying, you look like children. You're almost children, but you're just stones. No life. No fruit. And the part about the axe, that was scary. That was scary. Because I knew, I knew the scripture. The day of the Lord It was only good news if you were ready. 
The day of the Lord is only good news if you're part of his kingdom. For everyone else, the day of the Lord is judgment. And so then I heard John say this. He said, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now this might surprise you, but I actually knew about baptism as well. You see, my people, we had these baptismal pools called mikvah, and you would go down into the stairs, into the water, up the stairs, the other side. I had participated in this a few times. Clean on the outside, no different on the inside. Wet on the outside, dry as chaff on the inside. I knew, I knew something had to change. And so I got in line. I was ready to confess my sins. I was ready to repent. So I got in the baptism line. And I recognized some of the people in the line. There were some people from work. There were some people from the area where I lived. But the guy in front of me, I didn't recognize him. Late 20s, not physically imposing or attractive, but he seemed peaceful, purposeful, like he was ready to meet John. He didn't seem guilty like the rest of us. And so we moved up in line, and when the guy in front of me got to John, John's demeanor changed immediately. He said, I can't baptize you. Not because he was a Pharisee or a Sadducee. John didn't feel comfortable baptizing this guy. But the guy looked back at John and he insisted. He says, no, you need to do it. Let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John gave in. There was no way John was going to stand in the way of God's will. John could see where all this was pointing. And so he baptized this guy. And I know you won't believe me, but when this guy went into the water and came back up, it was like the sky split apart and heaven came to earth. The Spirit of God was there. And I heard a voice, and to this day, I guarantee you it was the voice of God. And the voice said this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, I realized at this moment, the Son of God had stood in line with me. He stood in line like a sinner, except he wasn't. He didn't destroy John's baptism. He fulfilled it. He took it on like a servant who was suffering. And then when he came out of the water, the Spirit of God was all over that place. He stood in line with sinners, he suffered like a servant, and he was revealed to be the Son of God. Now, you probably realize that at that point, I don't really remember much about my baptize, baptism. I was just the guy next in line. Don't remember much about it. I knew I needed to be. I wanted 
to confess my sins and repent, but I really wanted to follow that guy in front of me in line. Wherever he went, I was going to be a part of his kingdom. Except I looked over, and he wasn't there anymore. It was like he had disappeared, like God had just taken him away from that place. But all was not lost, because a couple of weeks later, I saw him up by the Sea of Galilee, preaching on a hillside. And then a couple of years later, I saw that same guy on another hill. But that's a story for another time. All right, what's going on? In John chapter 3, with this story that we are given here about the baptism that John brings, and why does he baptize Jesus? What's happening there? Churches all around the world today, I didn't plan this, this is one of those fun ways that it works out, churches all around the world who follow a regular church calendar, liturgical calendar, are reading and talking about this particular story this morning in churches, but, but what's going on here? What I want you to see starting out is as the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew 1 and 2 connects to the story of his baptism in chapter 3, that there's a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities happening between those two stories. And here's one of the things you need to know. Jesus, when he comes, is divisive. I know this is surprising, but when Jesus comes, he's divisive. Think about his birth. Many people are drawn to him, but then you also have many that are opposed to him. When he comes at the baptism of John, you see the same thing happening. Look in your Bible if you have it open to Matthew chapter 3. Or you were critiquing my storytelling as you were following along in Matthew 3, if you jumped ahead. Matthew chapter 3, look in verse 5 as a starting point. We're going to cover all these verses, but, but look, in, look in verse 5 as a starting point. It says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So you see common people coming from all different areas out to this area to receive John's baptism that ultimately is going to point forward to the coming of Jesus. And so people are coming, they're being a part, they're participating in what is happening right in front of them. But then you have to read one more verse and you see the division that starts to happen here. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, and there, there's our words again, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath, of come, the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's look there at verse 7 just for a second. You have these Pharisees and these Sadducees who are coming for baptism. If you received one of those small sermon note cards, I think the first point that I, that I put on there is that this story of the baptism teaches us to reject prideful and fruitless religion. This story, from the very beginning, teaches us that we must reject prideful and fruitless religion. 
Now think for me a second about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So I, I want to make sense of these historically, and then I want to try to draw some contemporary uh, parallels, and Amanda's helped me think through some of this this week with, with making some of these connections. So historically, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees that don't really get along. Um, and it's, it's too soon to make contemporary political uh, analogies there, but you have these two groups that will get along. But funny enough, when you have a common enemy, you can become strange bedfellows. And so you have these two groups that don't see eye to eye on very much. They're not, they're not connected, but they know they're opposed to the baptism of John. And guess what? They're going to be opposed to the ministry of Jesus. The Sadducees come as the cultural and social elites. They're okay with a little bit of religion as long as it doesn't mess up their lives. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe, generally speaking, in supernatural spiritual power. And they really only take the first five books of the, what we would call the Bible as their scripture. And so when you think about the Sadducees, I think you can draw a parallel to contemporary life for those that are okay with a little bit of religion as long as it really doesn't impact their life very much. And if you want to know what that looks like and feels like, just live for a while in Oklahoma in 2019, and you'll have a feeling of what that looks like. I enjoy my social status. I enjoy having a pretty good life. I'm not opposed to religion as long as it doesn't get too spiritual, too supernatural, and it doesn't mess with my life too much. You have this group that comes out to the baptism of Jesus. On the other side of that, you have the Pharisees, who are probably more popular if you grew up in church and you heard the Bible. Not popular in a good way, you just know about them more. The Pharisees are the teachers and the interpreters of the law. They draw very tight boundaries, especially if those boundaries help themselves look good. Uh, very judgmental toward others around them. If you want to know what it's like to be around the Pharisees, just live in Oklahoma for a while in 2019, and you can know what that feels like as well. We, we do pretty well in both of these categories. Here's the problem. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are both opposed in many ways to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, especially as it will come through Jesus. And we find that they're critiqued in the sense that their religion is prideful, it's built on self, how good self looks, what's best for self, and it's also fruitless. It doesn't lead to the results that true and faithful, God-driven religion, faith should lead to. And so from the very beginning of this story, we are called to reject this. If we are going to receive, hear me clearly, let me just jump to the, to the main idea here. If we are going to understand and receive the coming of the ministry of Jesus, we have to reject these two ways of seeking to be part of God's kingdom. Because guess what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, do you know how long they will battle against the ministry of Jesus? All the way through our study of Matthew, you're going to see these fights building. You're going to see these debates continuing. They continue to battle against this. As long as we embrace prideful and fruitless religion, we will be fighting against the kingdom of heaven. As long as we embrace prideful and fruitless religion, we will be fighting against the kingdom that Jesus brings. Now, why do we need to reject this? 
The reason we need to reject this is because the kingdom of God is here. This is urgent. This matters now. Look in verse 1. You go back to verse 1 in chapter 3. Why will prideful and fruitless religion not work? Why is this so bad? Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, that phrase, in those days, is kind of a funny phrase because immediately before this was about 25 to 27 years in the past. So, in one verse, John has skipped over a majority of Jesus' growing up years, and he said, in those days. Those days that are actually connected to what just came before, but in those days where all of this is coming to fruition, this happens. John is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's here now. What God said he was going to do in coming to rescue the people, he is doing right now. It has come. There's no waiting. It's here right now. Verse 3 For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If you remember back before the new year when we were talking about Matthew chapter 1 and 2, kids, Christmas Eve service, you guys remember the puzzle? These guys down here that were terrible putting puzzles together, you guys remember how that worked? So the story of Matthew, the story of Matthew is all about this word fulfill, how the coming of Jesus fulfills the promises that God has made. I know the word fulfill doesn't show up directly in verse 3, but that's exactly what is happening again. You're getting a scripture from an Old Testament prophet, and then Matthew, as the author of this gospel, is telling you how this fulfills, how all of this has been pointing to this point. And so the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here now. What does that mean? It means responding to that kingdom is serious business. This is not something that we play around with. This is why later in your New Testament, you'll get that language, today is the day of salvation. When do we reply, not reply, when do we respond to the kingdom of God coming? Today. Not whenever we want to. Not on our personal schedule, it's here, now. This is a good moment just to slip in that little reminder. It was urgent to respond to the kingdom of heaven in 30 AD. It's urgent to respond to the kingdom of heaven in 2019. The end times began with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through Jesus and they continue to this day. There's nothing wrong with studying or thinking about the end times, but, but remember, your New Testament is filled with the end times. They lived in the same urgency. Should you be urgent about responding to the kingdom of God? You better bet you should, as should these people as well in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is here through Jesus. We have to respond. And so the kingdom is here. The second reason we respond and we reject this prideful, fruitless religion is because Jesus is worthy. Because why would you hold on, hear me out on this, please hear me out in Oklahoma in 2019, why would you hold on to prideful, fruitless religion when Jesus Christ 
is right there. The Son of God who loved you and gave up his life for you. Option number one, I'm in charge, I build my own way, it leads to nothing. Option number two, the king of heaven came and gave his life so that I could have a life I never deserved. When you put it like that, yes. The problem is, over here, kingdom of, of heaven, is things like die to yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. Not cheap grace, but, but costly grace. You give up something there. What does it mean that Jesus is worthy? Verse 16, skip down to the end of the chapter just for a second. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Let's talk just for a second about the baptism of Jesus, because this can cause some, uh, uh, some confusion. Why was Jesus baptized if he himself had not sinned. He had nothing to repent of. What does it mean that he was baptized? There's a good deal of debate, as you would imagine, uh, about that question. I think you can hone in on a couple of things that make sense of why Jesus was baptized. And I meant to put these in your notes. If they didn't make it, I'm gonna tell you now, but I think they're in there. A couple of reasons I think this makes sense. Number one is he is identifying with John's ministry, with John's baptism. You're going to get to a key verse. And in fact, out to the side, if you like to write notes inside your Bible, I think you can write this verse and it'll make sense. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is the turning point for understanding how to interpret the book of Matthew. Um, and essentially what it says is that Jesus didn't come... Jesus didn't come to abolish or destroy or do away with the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus comes and participates in the baptism of John, it's his way of saying, this has been God's plan and his work all along, and now I'm going to fulfill and show you where that points. Had he come along and not participated in John's baptism, not acknowledged what John was doing, it would be like he was driving a wedge between what we call the Old Testament, what God had been planning, and then what was going to come to fulfillment. But when, John particip when Jesus participates in John's baptism, it's Jesus' way of drawing together and saying, all this fits. What was prophesied is now being fulfilled. So that's one of the core reasons he does this. The second reason is in his baptism, he identifies with sinners like us. The language here even goes back and in some really neat ways, picks up Isaiah chapter 53, which is famous in prophecy for being the prophecy of the suffering servant who would come. And so Jesus stands in line with sinners. I don't know anybody who enjoys standing in line. If you want to stand in line sooner, I mean, say it again, if you want to stand in line longer sometime, follow me into a checkout line because we will be there forever. Like, you know, you, <laughs> you, you, know, you guys know how it works. Like, I am incredible about getting in the longest. You know, it's the sweet lady in front that has 50 coupons and then wants to pay with cash. 
and doesn't have enough cash, and so they're looking for coins in their purse, and you're like, oh my goodness, how did I do that? Jesus comes and stands in line with sinners. Here's something pretty cool about the way the book of Matthew works. What he does at his baptism in standing in line with sinners mirrors the reason you have the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Because remember how Matthew's gospel begins? List of names, list of names, list of names. Jesus. He's in line with all these people who came before. Were they perfect? Not a chance. They had all kinds of problems, but Jesus gets in line with them. Chapter 3, all these people in line for John's baptism, Jesus gets in line with them. He is showing the way of his ministry is that he is going to identify with sinners without being a sinner himself. And in doing this, it points to number three on your notes, his baptism actually pictures and foreshadows his coming death and resurrection. Now, obviously in a way that the people there would never have been able to pick up on. But as he comes, and look at verse 17, just so I don't get, get too far ahead of myself. Look at verse 17. When he comes with his baptism, what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That language in Matthew is going to lead you straight to the cross. Because the same obedient son of God who came for baptism is the same obedient son of God who is going to go through the Garden of Gethsemane and all the way to the cross. And so remember, why is Jesus worthy? He is the obedient son of God. He identifies with sinners. He obeys the Father's will. He serves through suffering. But not only, get this, this is important, not only is he the obedient son of God, but he is also the powerful son of God. Look back in verse 11. This is not just another man who's doing his best to be religious. He's not just the obedient son of God, he's the powerful son of God. Verse 11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Son of God will bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. The Spirit of God will break out. You see this all the way through the ministry of Jesus, and especially when you get in your Bible to that fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, and you see the explosion of this ministry happening through the church, that this will happen this way. You go to verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, let's just be honest here, okay? This messes with a lot of our pictures of Jesus. Uh, the blonde, curly-haired Jesus with really light skin um, struggles sometimes with how do you take that picture that seems so weak sometimes, and then you read this verse right here, because you throw that grain up into the air, and the dry chaff blows away, and the wheat settles back down. There's a division happening here that, that's pretty intense. One really neat Old Testament connection you can make here if you'd like to write another note in your Bible. This has Psalm chapter 1 written all over it. 
Psalm chapter 1 about the blessed man who will come and not sit in the way of sinners, but is going to obey the law of God and fruit is going to come as a result of that. You can take John chapter 3 and do so many cool things with Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, the blessed man, who's that going to be? It's going to be fulfilled by Jesus. He's going to come with this ministry. And so he comes and he executes judgment. Where does that leave us? Let's look at the kingdom connection. How do we draw all this together? What do you do as a result of this? Well, first off, you reject prideful and fruitless religion. God, we're not going down that road. At the core, I may be a Sadducee, I may be a Pharisee, but I turn away from that. I repent of that. You repent of sin and trust in Jesus there's a lot of ways you can talk about this, but there's that really simple kids ABC language. That ABC language fits so well here in this story. Admit that I'm a sinner. Believe in the power of God to save. And confess that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. The kids could sing you a song that sounds better than, than my language just then. Just ask your kids to sing you the ABC song from Vacation Bible School and they'll, they'll fill in the pieces. But what does it mean to be a part of God's kingdom? You admit, you believe, you confess. And then we're baptized to connect with Christ's church. In your Bible, if you know the book of Matthew pretty well, the book of Matthew ends in chapter 28 with Jesus saying to go into all the world and make disciples. How? By baptizing them. Matthew 3 is the foundation that makes sense for Matthew chapter 28. That the one who came to give us life for us will then send us out to share that message with others. That you be baptized to show people this is what God has done in my life. I'm going to be a part of his people. I'm made a child of God not because of anything in my family or anything I've done because of what he's done in my life. And then we learn from John chapter 3 that the kingdom of God is made up of those who live humbly, those who live urgently, and those who live fruitfully. If Emmaus could be known for something this morning, what does it look like when the kingdom of God shows up? That we would be humble. That everything we are about is pointing people toward Jesus. That we would be known as humble people. That we would be urgent. There's no playing around, except when we're playing putt-putt on Tuesdays as a staff and we Facebook Live it. We're still urgent about the kingdom of God at that point, too. We live humbly. We live urgently. This matters. It's a serious business and we live fruitfully. God, do through us what we can never do on our own power. Let me ask you in your own life, so let's, let's get very self-reflective at this point. Have I admitted my sins, believed in the power of God to save, and confessed that Jesus is Savior and Lord? That requires that you reject that religion we talked about earlier and you run to Jesus. Have I done that? Have I been baptized and connected with Christ's church the way that he calls us to do? 
And then when somebody looks at my life, do they see humility? Do they see urgency about things that matter? And do they see fruit? Do they see good works that point toward Jesus? Emmaus, when Amanda and I were talking about this yesterday, one of the things I love about our church is that this morning, I knew we would send out a family that's seeking to live humbly, urgently, and fruitfully in another part of the world. And at the same time, I knew we would have Sunday school classes here this morning that are humble, urgent, and fruitful. They see a need, they don't tell anybody about it, they just go and meet it because they know it's urgent, they need to take care of it, and then as a result of that, gospel fruit comes out of it. Is your Sunday school class, is your family humble, urgent, and fruitful? How does that happen? When we give our lives to the obedient, powerful Son of God. Would you bow your heads with me? So in response to God's word, I know there's so much here in one chapter like John chapter 3. Not John, Matthew chapter 3. With John the Baptist and Jesus. With Matthew 3, I know there's so much there. Let's take a deep breath and, and ask the Spirit of God to work and our hearts to work among us right now. We're going to sing a very simple song, Just As I Am. We're going to pass our offering plates through those resources. We're able to be on mission with things that are urgent for the gospel. But right now in your heart, Do you know what it is to experience the power of God to bring salvation? Have you been resisting that? Have you been depending on your family? The kingdom of God is not coming in the future. The kingdom of God is here. Is your hope based on your family or your background? What's the foundation of your life? Is it a dry religion that will pass away? Or is it the power of the Son of God who gave his life for you? I pray this morning that if you need to trust in Christ for salvation that you would do that. If you need to be baptized, that you would let us know about that. That you would give yourself to the Lord during these few moments. God, we give ourselves to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.